chapter 37 right through to chapter 50, tracking the life of Joseph and God's sovereign hand on this family of Abraham. There's a TV program that airs on Channel 4 called Grand Designs. Does anyone watch it? You happy to admit it or not? Yeah, some of you do. I've never really been into it, but it's all about following the progress of elaborate architectural home building projects. The program starts with the grand design, the idea, and then it tracks the realization of that idea in the building project or the renovation or whatever it is. But throughout the program, the whole project is always governed and guided by the grand design. And I've always thought grand designs would be a great title to give this section of the book of Genesis. Because in these chapters, we see that though Joseph and his family have some major highs and lows, there is a grand design that governs all that happens to Joseph and his family in this narrative. God is sovereignly working to restore shalom, peace, to Joseph's broken family in these chapters. And he's sovereignly working to provide salvation for Joseph's family from the famine that threatened their very existence. But here's the key idea that I'd like us to consider this evening. Along the way, Joseph and his brothers didn't really grasp that there was a sovereign design guiding everything that was happening to them. They don't realize, or certainly as readers, we don't get that last piece of the puzzle until the very end of the book of Genesis, chapter 50, verse 20, where Joseph says to his brothers, God meant it all for good. And this is so often the way things are in our own lives. We go through ups and downs. There are seasons of life where things are good, and there are seasons of life where things happen to us that we just cannot understand. And it can be very hard to believe that there actually is a good grand design ordering our lives. In the midst of life, when we're in the washing machine of affliction, and we feel like we're just tumbling over and over, and we don't know what way is up, it can be so hard to see that there is a grand design, a design of God that is for our good. And yet, isn't it true that so often, like Joseph and his brothers and his father, it's often on the other side of the affliction when we look back, we can trace the unmistakable hand of God's purposeful sovereignty. And we can see that there was indeed a faithful God ordering all of our days. Genesis 43 is the next step in the unfolding of God's grand design for Joseph and his family. I've called this message sovereignty, 
shalom and salvation. Because God is sovereignly at work to restore shalom and peace to Joseph and his family and to bring salvation. There's so much to encourage us here, and there is so much that echoes the grandest design of all, the design of our salvation that is secured through Jesus Christ. So the main message that I want us to think on this evening is this. Though things in our lives may be difficult, God has a grand design and is working all things for the good of his people. And the implication of this truth is that we are called to trust in this good design, even when we can't discern it and figure out what God's doing. So the narrative of chapter 43 comes to us in two main scenes. It's very easy to break down. Scene one runs uh, from chapter 43, verse one, down to 14, and it's set in Canaan. Scene, Scene two runs from verse 15 to the end of the chapter, and it's set in Egypt. And I'm just gonna walk through the two scenes and put a heading over each of them, and then we'll think of some application along the way, but some significant implications for us right at the end. So scene one, verses one to 14, we see here God's grand design over Joseph's brother's desperate circumstances. Verse one opens by reminding us of the severe famine that was prevailing over the land. Remember, this is the famine that God had revealed to Joseph through his understanding of Pharaoh's dreams back in chapter 41. There would be seven years of plenty followed by seven years of famine. In chapter two, last week, Simon helped us to see how the brothers had gone down to get grain from Egypt because they heard that there was grain for sale there. Though the brothers didn't recognize Joseph, they encountered him as they came to Egypt. This was the brother, Joseph, whom they had sold into slavery out of jealousy of him. Joseph had now risen to power and was now the gatekeeper to all the provisions of grain in Egypt. If you ever wanted a man that you knew to be in a position of power who could help you, Joseph was the man to know. Joseph desperately wanted to meet and see his younger brother, Benjamin. And so last week we saw that he arrested one of the brothers, Simeon, and said to the other brothers, look, if you want this brother freed, you gotta go back to Canaan, get your brother, Benjamin, and bring him back to Egypt. Then I'll know that you're a truthful man, and then I'll release to you Simeon. And so at the end of chapter 42, we saw that the brothers arrived back in Canaan after being in Egypt with their grain, And they opened their sacks and they found that the money um, that they were to pay uh, for the grain, that money was all back in their sacks. And they were panicking. They were like, what's going on? They returned to their father, uh, to Jacob. They told him everything. They said, we've got to go back. We've got to go back and we've got to bring Benjamin so that we can see Simeon released. And Jacob simply said at the end of chapter 42, look, there's not a chance I'm letting Benjamin go down to Egypt. But now in verse two of chapter 43, some time has passed 
and the grain they had acquired in Egypt, it started to run out. Jacob says to his sons, you can almost feel that he's saying it and doesn't want to say it, go again and buy us a little food. It's as if he's choosing to almost ignore the reality of what the brothers have said about Benjamin and about Simeon in captivity. But Judah then steps forward and he really rises to a place of prominence in the narrative. And he responds to Jacob in verses 3 to 5. And he says, the man, notice the amount of times you read the man. No, they don't know who the man is, but the man's Joseph. The man solemnly warned us saying, you shall not see my face unless your brother's with you. If you'll send our brother Benjamin with us, we'll go down and buy you food. But if not, we'll not. If you won't send him, we'll not go down. For the man said to us, you'll not see my face unless your brother is with you. And you can just feel Jacob's frustration and the family tension rising when he responds in verse 6. And he's like, oh, why did you treat me so badly to ever tell the man that you had another brother? Why did you ever mention Benjamin? And they respond in verse 7. The man questioned us carefully about ourselves and our kindred, saying, is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? What we told him was an answer to these questions, Judah said. Could we in any way know he'd say, bring your brother down? Now you see the family relations are at a bit of an all-time low at this point in the narrative. Jacob seems fed up with his sons. Remember, Simeon and Levi at this point had brought trouble on him with their aggression towards the Canaanites in chapter 34. Reuben had gone in to his father's concubine in chapter 35. Judah had disgraced the family with a prostitute in chapter 38. And you see Jacob's attitude towards his brothers or his sons when he said to them at the end of chapter 42, verse 38, he said, you're not taking Benjamin because his brother Joseph is dead and he's the only one I have left. Oh, how hurtful that must have been for Judah to hear his father say that and the other brothers. Joseph's gone. Benjamin's the only son I have left. Oh. Family relationships can be strained. And yet, one of the things we're going to see in this narrative is that God's grand design for our lives is not hindered by our messy families. He can work through even the messy family situations we find ourselves in that can be so hurtful and stressful. Still sovereign. Still good. And though Judah would have been hurt by his father's words at the end of chapter 42, look now at his response to his father's complaining in verses 8 and 9. Look at how God is working maturity and transformation in Judah's heart. Out of the dung hill of the strained family relations, a rose begins to blossom. In Judah. Judah says in verse 8 Send the boy with me, and we will arise and go that we may live and not die, both we and you and our little ones. I will be a pledge of his safety. Now, that word pledge should ring a bell. 
Back in Genesis 38, Judah had said to the prostitute that he went into, I'll give you a pledge, and then later I'll send payment for your services. It's as if Moses, in writing the narrative, wants us to remember Judah, the self-centered, brash man back in chapter 38. But then look at this Judah now. He goes on to say in verse 9, from my hand you shall require him. If I don't bring Benjamin back and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. He's saying, I'll lay down my life to make sure Benjamin is restored to you, Father. I'll lay down my rights, my ambitions, my position. I'll do whatever to make sure that my brother Benjamin makes it back to you safely. Judah shines in the narrative here. And it's striking because in chapter 49 of Genesis, when Jacob is pronouncing blessings on his sons, he'll speak of Judah in a very special way. He'll say that a ruler will come from Judah's family, a son who the obedience of the peoples, the nations would belong to this son that would come from Judah's line. And we know that this ultimately speaks of Jesus, who would be born a descendant of the tribe of Judah. Judah in our narrative is like a prefigurement of the great son who would come from his line. Jesus, think about it, out of love for his father, would give himself as a pledge to make sure that we would be brought home to the Father. John 10, 11, Jesus said, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus fulfills the pattern that Judah foreshadowed in Genesis 43. And we can learn from this, can't we? Because as we were considering on Wednesday evening in our small groups, the sacrificial act of Jesus is a blueprint that we're to follow as we follow him. Obviously, we cannot die for other people's sins, but Jesus' humble act of coming to the world, being obedient unto death, even death on a cross, is given as the example in Philippians 2. We are to have the same mind among ourselves. We're not to just think of our own interests. We're to think of the interests of others. We're to lay our lives down, to go low for the sake of of caring for others. So Judah is both a type of Christ here and being so is an example that we are to follow. But then look now at verses 11 to 14 as we get Jacob's response to Judah's very convincing words. Jacob responds, if it must be so, then do this. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bags. Carry a present down to the man, a little balm and a little honey, gum, myrrh, pistachio nuts, and almonds. Now, you're not to miss some real irony in the narrative here. Remember when Joseph was sold back in chapter 37 to the Ishmaelite traders? Well, we were told a little detail in the narrative that they were bearing on their camels gum, balm, myrrh carrying it on the way to Egypt. It seems again, Moses, the narrator, wants us to see some kind of great reversal at work here. For a second time, those things, the balm, the 
honey, the gum, these things, they're being carried down to Egypt again. Once those materials were being carried down with a brother to Egypt, now they're being carried down to Egypt to make sure a brother returns. Jacob continues in verse 12, take double the money with you. Verse 13, take also your brother, that's Benjamin, and arise, go again to the man. Then listen to his benediction in verse 14. May God Almighty, El Shaddai, grant you mercy before the man, and may he send back your other brother and Benjamin. And as for me, if I'm bereaved of my children, I'm bereaved. Where first we observed a growing transformation in Judah in the narrative, I think again we are to see a growing transformation happening in Jacob's life. When we first met Jacob in Genesis back in chapter 25, we remember proud Jacob, the deceiver, who cheated his brother Esau out of his birthright and blessing. Jacob wanted to be in control of everything, wanted to manipulate circumstances so that he would benefit. He wrestled with God, and God touched him and brought him to a place of surrender to the sovereignty of God. And here again, that surrender is demonstrated as in these desperate circumstances. He just surrenders now to God. I'll not fight anymore. May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man. If I'm bereaved, I'm bereaved. But notice one other little subtle message in what he says, and I think it's really there. Verse 14, may God Almighty grant you mercy before the man, and may he send back your other brother and Benjamin. I think it's striking that he doesn't say there that he may send back Simeon and Benjamin. May it be that the author wants us to see that the other brother who in the end will be restored to Jacob will in fact be Joseph. Maybe. Maybe God will send back your other brother and Benjamin. Speaking of Simeon, perhaps, but maybe speaking better than he knew. There are enough hints in the narrative here to see God's grand design over this family's desperate circumstances. Seven times they speak of the man that they have to confront in Egypt. And they don't realize that the whole time they're talking about Joseph. Even though the brothers and Jacob don't realize it, God's at work in their lives. Judah rising to prominence, who would become such a significant figure in salvation history throughout Scripture. Judah, willing to lay down his life to ensure reconciliation between a father and his estranged son. Jacob, continuing to surrender to God as he's brought into desperate circumstances where he has to learn complete surrender. All of this would be used as part of God's plan for restoring shalom and bringing salvation to this family. When I, stay restore, when I say restoring shalom, God was at work to bring reconciliation. 
In the end, the brothers and Joseph would be reconciled. Jacob would be reconciled with his estranged son. But they didn't have a clue of the grand design that was governing everything. And as God was working out his purposes, maturing Judah, maturing Jacob, through the trial, God bringing maturity. Like Jared pointed us to at the very beginning of the service. Consider a pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of various kinds, knowing that the testing of your faith develops perseverance, and perseverance must finish its work so that you can become mature and complete, lacking in nothing. That is God's grand design working itself out in Joseph, in Jacob, in his brothers, in Jacob's sons, even though it didn't look like it. Romans 8, 28 was true for them. God was working all things for their good. So think of something right now in your life that is messy and hard and very hard to understand. Know that God can salvage roses out of the worst dunghills. There's no family so broken that he can't fix it. But we're called to trust him, to live faithfully, like Judah lived in this narrative at this point. We're called to surrender to the Lord and his sovereignty and faith, to let go of the need to try to control everything and to learn to trust God. God was sovereign. He had a grand design over their desperate circumstances. But now as we move to the second scene of the narrative, and we go to Egypt now, back with uh, Jacob's sons and Benjamin, we now see, secondly, God's grand design over the brothers' confusing circumstances, over their desperate circumstances in the first scene, but now they are a picture of complete confusion in this scene. But God is still sovereign. In verse 15, the second scene opens with the brothers taking the present that Jacob has given them, the money and Benjamin, and they head back to face Joseph again, or the man, and to seek more grain. They arrive, and in verse 16, when Joseph sees Benjamin with them, he instructs his steward to bring them into his house and to prepare a meal so that he can dine with them at noon. Now, this would have been pretty intimidating for the brothers. Remember, on their first visit, they were accused of being spies by Joseph. They returned home to Canaan. They had found their money in their sacks. So it looks like they had taken grain that they hadn't actually paid for. They knew powerful Egyptian men like this man, Joseph. They knew that men like Joseph had dungeons in their basements. And, and the brothers fear the worst about Joseph's intentions for them. In verse 18, we read this. They feared that Joseph would assault them, make them slaves, and seize their donkeys. Kind of irrational. Would the overlord of Egypt really need some more donkeys? In verses 19 to 22, they call Joseph's steward, and they explain that last time they came to buy food, upon their return home, they each found their money in their sacks. In verse 22, they say, we have no idea how this happened. We have no idea how the money got into our sacks. In verse 18 down to 22, they mention this money issue 
five times. They're totally consumed with it. They've no idea what's actually going on. They're totally confused. Joseph seems to be testing them to see what kind of men they've become. Are they honest? Would they return for their brother Simeon? Have they changed their ways? So the brothers have returned to Egypt. They have been honest about the money. But then look at what just almost comes a bolt out of the blue. Look at what we hear on the lips of this Egyptian steward as he responds to their fear and concern about what's going on. Verse 23, the Egyptian steward says, peace, shalom to you. Don't be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. At that point, we're told that he brought Simeon out to them, almost like a ransom was paid. Isn't it striking? One of the clearest expressions of the gospel in the book of Genesis is found on the lips of this Egyptian. The Egyptians preaching the gospel to the brothers. Peace, don't be afraid. God has made provision for you. Simeon's released. They feared that the money would be held against them. God made provision for them. Now where, oh where, did that Egyptian learn to speak like that? Where did he learn of the Father? Where did he learn of this God? Surely it has to have been from Joseph. So God is at work even through Joseph's witness to bring blessing on the nations through Abraham's family. Reminds me of Daniel and his friends being brought into exile in Babylon. And they end up being witnesses for the kingdom right in the heart of Babylon. So, the needs of the brothers are cared for by this Egyptian steward. And then in verse 26, we read of Joseph coming in now for the noontime meal. In verse 26, for the first time, all 11 brothers now bow down before Joseph. In verse 26 and verse 28, they bow down and prostrate themselves before Joseph. A little signal again that the grand design of God's sovereign purposes is unfolding even in these very confusing circumstances for the brothers. You see, remember the, the dreams in chapter 37 that Joseph had of his 11 brothers bowing down before him. We see God's grand design. Well, Joseph then, at the meal, just before it's set down, he asks about their father's well-being. Is he still alive? He asks about Benjamin's welfare. He probably had to just affirm, this is Benjamin, isn't it? This is your brother. And as he lays his, ha his eyes on his full brother, Benjamin, he is simply overwhelmed and he weeps. After gathering himself, he sits down to a meal together with the brothers. But notice how again a kind of separation is highlighted in verse 32. They serve Joseph by himself and the brothers by themselves because of the Egyptian food customs. It's as if there's an indication again that there's a way to go before there's going to be full reconciliation. That will come 
in the next few chapters. In verse 33, we're told, Joseph had the brothers seated in order of their age. And the brothers are looking at each other going, what is going on? What are the chances of us all being organized in perfect order of our age, oldest to youngest? They're super confused with what's happening. You can imagine them looking at each other in amazement. Portions are brought to them from Joseph's table. Benjamin, we're told, is given five times as much as the other brothers. This seems to be like a kind of test where it used to be that the brothers would have gone absolutely crazy about this kind of thing. They would have been jealous of this kind of show of favoritism. We read that they all drank and were merry together with Joseph. They got on with the fellowship, paid no attention to the one who received more than the others. Now just reflect on this scene for a moment. The brothers don't have a clue what's going on. They've been obsessed with fear because of the money that they think they owe. An Egyptian says, Shalom, God has provided for your needs. They're now sitting and enjoying fellowship with this man. And they're totally clueless that they're dining with Joseph. They're afraid, irrational in their fear, pessimistic, afraid of the worst. You could easily have heard them say, Lord, what are you doing? And yet God was working out gradually the restoration of shalom in this family. And he was working out salvation because in the end, when those brothers need grain, Who's the man who has the key to the storehouse? Their brother. But they still need to be reconciled to him. In many ways, Jacob's sons are a picture of lost sinners. God has raised up a man. He had to go through awful humiliation, but has been risen to a place of prominence. Now, everything the brothers need is is in this man, but they're estranged from him. And so in these chapters, we're tracing this grand purpose of God to reconcile the brothers so that they can be saved from death. It's a beautiful picture of the gospel. But just like the brothers, we can be in circumstances where we're fearful when things are happening to us that we don't understand. We can be so confused sometimes because we could never write the story of sovereignty. We could never figure out the grand design behind our pains. But there is a grand story. We're called to hope in that. It's very hard. It's very hard. But we surrender like Jacob. Hear the words from the Egyptian steward spoken into your messy situation. Shalom, peace, fear not. God has provided. He's paid your debt. He's put treasure into the sack of your empty, spiritually impoverished soul. Now, that's our narrative, but what are the implications as we close? Well, In desperate times, we are called to trust God that he's sovereign, he's good, 
and has a good plan, even in the pain. He's shaping our character to make us more like Christ. He's chiseling off our self-sufficiency. He's painting on the beautiful character of Christ. He's working in us in our pains, a deeper surrender to him. He's strengthening our faith that even when we don't feel it, we rest in faith. We walk by faith and not sight. In desperate times, we trust. And in confusing times, we have to trust again that God is sovereign, God is good, and God has a good plan. He is always at work for the good of his people to bring them into a deeper experience of shalom and salvation. Isn't it amazing that at the end of the narrative, Joseph and his brothers are enjoying a fellowship meal together. Joseph's brothers don't realize it. They're having a fellowship meal with the man who will be their savior. The man they rejected. The man they sold into slavery. The man that they threw into a pit. They rejected him. But Joseph would be their savior. God raised up this man, Joseph, and through him, God would provide for Abraham's family so that they would be preserved and so that blessing could be brought on the nations through the arrival of the true son of Judah, the true son of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the Lord Jesus Christ. God raised up Joseph to preserve the family. That's an outline of God raising up the man, Christ, to save the family of God. And since God has done this, kept his promises, we can trust him, even when we don't understand what he's doing, that he is working out the same shalom and salvation in our lives. What is our job? We are to keep trusting in Christ, to keep living the surrendered life under his lordship, and to say, the Lord is my true shalom and my true salvation. I think I'm realizing more and more as I get older. If you're looking for satisfaction and peace and happiness in this world, you'll never get it. The only place of true shalom and salvation and peace and satisfaction is in the Lord. This world is broken, it's fallen. You keep seeing promises that it's gonna get better and another war. Promises that science is gonna solve every problem and man's still as wicked as ever. Don't you ever just feel so tired of the world and the brokenness? Well, where's true shalom? Where's true rest to be found in the man God has raised up, Jesus Christ? And he says, come to me all who thirst, and I will give you to drink. And the water that I give to you, that I give to you, it'll become within you a stream of living water. It'll well up onto eternal life. The water I give you will quench you on a deeper level than you could ever imagine, and you won't ever be thirsty in that way again. So here we have Genesis 43, gospel, shadows, outlines, types. It's beautiful. 
the grand design that governs and orders our days. It's true in your life, in your mess that you can't figure out. God is still sovereign and still good. Let's trust him. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your almighty sovereignty. Your purposes can never be thwarted. And thank you that you have a grand design and that you ordain all things in our lives to serve your grand design for our shalom and our salvation. Lord, I pray for all of us. We all carry areas of our lives where there's brokenness and messiness. And so, Lord, we just want to hold up that mess in our family or whatever comes to mind when we think of the hard thing that's hard to understand, that makes us feel desperate. We hold it up, Lord, and and we just surrender it to you again. And we say we trust you with it because you've demonstrated through the death of Jesus when everything looked so desperate and so confusing You had a grand design that was better than anything we could ever imagine because resurrection follows affliction. And indeed, the roses bloom out of the worst dunghills. And we pray, Lord, for the blooming of roses in the dung and messiness of our own lives. For your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. But we are going to sing of the sovereignty of our God. There's none above him, none before him. All of time is in his hands. Let's rise and praise him as we surrender in our hearts again to his sovereignty. Let's praise him. Thank you.
now may the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face to shine on you and to be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.